Chapter 18 of the Life and Ventures of the Original John Jacob Astor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Warner. The Life and Ventures of the Original John Jacob Astor by Elizabeth Louisa Gerhardt. Chapter 18 A New Century. The departure of the Astor ships was directed from New York, their owner always giving his captains and agents explicit and minute directions in regard to the management of the expedition. If these directions were accurately followed, the voyage was usually a prosperous one. In those days of sailing packets, with commercial restrictions peculiar to the times, with no telegraph, cable across the ocean, or wireless, and with postal communication very irregular, the organization and conduct of these ocean ventures, with their possibility of accidents and delays, called for most comprehensive foresight and sagacity on the part of the managing head of this worldwide commerce. Mr. Astor was in the habit of forming his plans with the utmost deliberation, but when really under way, he carried them forward with nerve and dispatch, and with an easy grasp of every detail. In the early years of the 19th century, the fur trade was very profitable and of vast extent. Six million peltries were estimated to have been sold annually, the skins varying in value from 15 cents to $500. Nearly every gentleman in Europe and America wore a beaver skin upon his head, or a part of one. Good beaver skins could be bought from the Indians for a dollar's worth of trinkets. In London, the same skin brought 25 English shillings. These 25 English shillings, invested in English cloth and cutlery, brought a return in New York of $10. So the beaver skin rolled up money as it traveled, and the fur trade was a good business. Mr. Astor's ventures to China, as has been stated, were often most fortunate. A fair profit on a voyage to the east was $30,000. He was the first American merchant to conceive the idea of habitually trading around the globe, sending supercargoes with American furs to England, from there carrying British merchandise to China, and returning to America with tea. Sometimes this order was reversed and his ships sailed westward, but eastward or westward, they circled the globe, and were gone the larger part of two years. In speaking of Mr. Astor, Philip Hone, at one time mayor of New York, wrote in his diary, The fur trade was the philosopher's stone of this modern Croesus, beaver skins and muskrats, furnishing the oil for the supply of Aladdin's lamp. His traffic was the shipment of furs to China, where they bought immense prices for he monopolized the business, and the return cargoes of teas, silks, and rich productions of China brought further large profits. For here, too, he had very little competition at the time of which I am speaking. My brother and I found in Mr. Astor a valuable customer. We sold many of his cargoes, and had no reason to complain of a want of liberality or confidence. All he touched turned to gold, and it seemed as if fortune delighted in erecting him a monument of, of her unerring potency. At that time, a tea merchant of large capital had an advantage which Walter Barrett, an old writer, explains. A house that could raise money enough thirty years ago, the first quarter of the 19th century, to send $260,000 in specie could soon have an uncommon capital, and this was the working of the old system. The Griswolds owned the ship Panama. They started her from New York in the month of May, with a cargo of perhaps 30,000 worth of ginseng, spelter, lead, iron, etc., and 170,000 in Spanish dollars. The ship goes on the voyage and reaches Wampar, a few miles below Canton, in safety. Her supercargo in two months 
has her loaded with tea, some chinaware, a great deal of cassia, or false cinnamon, and a few other articles. Suppose the cargo is mainly tea, costing about 37 cents per pound on the average. The duty was enormous in those days. It was twice the cost of the tea at least, so that a tea cargo of $200,000, when it had paid the duty of 75 cents a pound, which would be $400,000, amounted to 600000 The profit was at least 50% on the original cost, or $100,000, and would make the cargo worth $700,000. The cargo of tea would be sold almost on arrival, say 11 or 12 months after the ship left New York in May, to wholesale grocers, for their notes at four and six months, say $700,000. In those years, there was credit given by the United States of nine, 12, and 18 months, so that the East India or Canton merchant, after his ship had made one voyage, had the use of government capital for, to the extent of $400,000 on the ordinary cargo of a China ship. No sooner had the ship Panama arrived, or any of the regular East Indiamen, than the cargo would be exchanged for grocer's notes for $700,000. These notes could be turned into specie very easily, and the owner had only to pay his bonds for $400,000 duty at 9, 12, or 18 months, giving him time to actually send two more ships with $200,000 each to Canton, and have them back again in New York before the bonds on the first voyage were due. John Jacob Astor, at one period of his life, had several ships operating in this way. They would go to Oregon on the Pacific, and carrying from thence furs for Canton, these would be sold at large profits. Then the cargoes of tea for New York would pay enormous duties which Astor did not have to pay to the United States for a year and a half. His tea cargoes would be sold for good for a six months paper, or perhaps cash, so that for 18 or 20 years, John Jacob Astor had what was actually a free of interest loan from the government of over $5 million. Astor was prudent and lucky in his operations, and such an enormous government loan didn't ruin him as it did others. The fur trade engrossed the thought of the men of those days, as the gold mines did a later generation. It gave employment to many thousands, and among the great merchants connected with it, there was intense competition. The fur sales of the Astors held spring and fall at a later date, brought crowds of fur dealers from all over Europe to attend them. As long as life lasted, John Jacob Astor had a warm affection for beautiful and costly furs, and for years he was accustomed to have a handsome specimen hanging in his counting room. Beaver, mink, sable and otter filled the great northern forests when the fur trade began, but as the hunters spread each year in great numbers over the fur country, beating the woods and trapping their game, gradually the abundance of fur-bearing animals diminished, and in some places became extinct. This result of the great fur trade sent the hunters in pursuit of new waters and forests, as yet unmolested by white men, where the fur-bearing animals still throve and multiplied. Woods and streams were scoured further and further west, until the fur trade reached the Mississippi and Missouri, and finally stretched from ocean to ocean. Although John Jacob Astor's tea business was secondary to his fur business, he combined the two as he circled the globe. He is said to have made by his voyages four times as much as the regular tea merchants in their most prosperous days. At this time there was not so great a variety of fancy teas. Black tea was called Souchong, and green Hyson skin, but occasionally a ship would bring to New York a few packages of young Hyson or Hyson. It was the custom of the day to hold auction sales of tea upon the wharves. Advertisements and handbills were distributed among the probable purchasers, and punch often contributed to the eclat and hilarity of the occasion. 
When there was an open market, the day ended with large profits for the tea merchant. To accommodate his tea business, Mr. Astor owned an immense tea warehouse on Greenwich Street, between Liberty and Cortland Streets. The ships that sailed the Pacific carried many articles besides furs and specie, and tea. The Rowlands were a typical firm of shippers, and we have a description of their freight. They sent out cargoes valued as high as $250,000, made up to Valparaiso, Lima, and Mazatlan. The cargoes were composed of everything from a cambric needle to a hoop pole, packed in small barrels so that they could be carried later on mules' backs. There were wines, bales of domestic fireworks, Chinese firecrackers, gunpowder, muskets, lead, crimson and scarlet crepe shawls, plain crockery and fine china. In fact, a regular department store of today. With each ship went the supercargo, who was usually a clerk in the employ of the house which he represented, who had been with them for some time, and was familiar with their methods of business. To the supercargoes of these early days belongs their credit of establishing American commercial houses in foreign ports. At first their mission was to sell their cargoes and buy return cargoes, accompanying them to New York, but after a time it was found that an agent was needed to remain permanently at the foreign port, and the supercargo was the man who best understood the situation. The first supercargoes to Canton became in later years the principal American merchants in China. The large capital called for in the East India business prevented the average merchant from trading in that part of the world. While American ships were sailing around the world, it is interesting to note that the regular packets employed between Falmouth and New York in the first decade of the 19th century still bore English names. Earl of Leicester, Princess Elizabeth, Lord Charles Spencer, Lady Arabella, the names of all of King George's family, ministers, and officers of the crown. These packets with royal names were hardly as large as the North River Sloop, and made but two voyages a year. But the time was not far away when both the size and names of the vessels plying between the United States and England changed, and North America, Independence, and Washington were among the cognomens that replaced those of royal lineage. Mr. Astor had been living for some years now at 223 Broadway, in a house built by Rufus King when he was United States Senator, before he became ambassador to the court of St. James. For a time his office was in Vesey Street. During the War of 1812, and for many years afterwards, he had his store at 69 Pine Street, corner of Pearl Street, which gave him the opportunity of going from the dooryard of his house into his store. This Broadway home had an open piazza, supported by pillars and arches, where its owner was accustomed to sit in the cool of the afternoon after an early dinner. Here he continued through the years to play scores of games of checkers, of which he was very fond, to enjoy his glass of beer and his pipe, and later, with his good road horse, to start on his rides over Manhattan Island, which had become a settled custom. The old Bowery Road, bordered with the residences of the Dutch aristocracy, low picturesque houses with high stoops, surrounded by guarding trees and masses of shrubbery, beneath whose shade whole families sat in the cool of the day while children rolled hoops and played marbles on the sidewalk, was familiar ground, as was also Bleecker Street, where blackberries and roses ran riot within and without the garden walls. Beyond St. Mark's Church was open country. The Stuyvesant meadows led on to farms and market gardens, varied by thickets and swamps while the rider occasionally passed fine old country seats in the midst of broad acres. Greenwich Village was two miles from the town of New York, and the traveller was apt to take the road through Greenwich Avenue, but no road was too remote or unfrequented to be traversed by John Jacob Astor and his good horse. So the island became more and more familiar to the future great landowner. An evening at the theatre was also among the great merchant's recreations. 
he warmly appreciated the dramatic performances of Edmund Keane and Charles Matthews, and the musical genius of Garcia and Madame Malibran, and when attendance at the Old Park Theatre was a popular evening recreation, Mr. Astor found rest and refreshment in witnessing a good play. End of chapter 18